Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, the book of Amos, chapter 9, and the end of our study of Amos. Well, okay, we have arrived at the final chapter of Amos. And so today we're going to conclude our study of this eye-opening record of revealed prophecy that God in His mercy has left to us. Now it's hard for me not to be hyperbolic and urging you to see how relevant to our contemporary times these inspired words are, and how our modern age, including the church, is nearly a mirrored reflection of the very issues so vividly brought to life through Amos. You know, Amos was passionate in trying to get Ephraim Israel to see the truth and reality of this series of oracles that God was communicating to them. Oracles that exposed their religious hypocrisy, their spiritual blindness, their heresy, but for the most part they refused, and they deflected, and then they paid an enormous price for their rebellious obstinance. You know what? Let us bow not to do the same. Let us begin by humbling ourselves, realizing how terribly off track our Judeo-Christian faith has gone, beginning with Constantine's virtual takeover of the Yeshua movement in the 4th century AD. It was Constantine, along with the powerful church in Rome, who birthed the Western Church that has evolved into more than a thousand denominations. From the Catholic Church to Calvary Chapel, from Methodists to Baptists, from Protestants to Anglicans, and even the Worldwide Church of God, to vir and virtually all the rest. The common root, the common root is, Roman, is the Roman Emperor Constantine. Now, thankfully, to one degree or another, the core of our faith that Yeshua, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, remains. But even that is being eroded at a rapid pace. Why? Because just like Israel had, step by step, slowly as the proverbial frog in the kettle, become overtaken with man-made doctrines that pushed out the true Word of God, so it has also become in church and synagogue. So overwhelmed with these misguided doctrines was Israel, that the Lord God Most High said, He refuses to accept their worship, and He refuses to be their God. Has church and synagogue reached that same point in God's eyes, but it's not yet realized? Well, if not, it certainly must be at the tipping point of no return. Alarming? Huh, absolutely. How do we find our way back? Believe God. Believe the Bible. The Bible He left for us. All of it. Not just 
parts we like that seem to validate what we've been told to believe. All right, let's read Amos chapter 9. Open up your Bibles to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9, starting at verse 1. I saw Adonai standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the columns until the thresholds shake. Smash them to pieces on the heads of all the people. Those who remain, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them will succeed in fleeing. Not one of them will escape. If they dig down to Sheol, my hand will haul them out. If they climb up to heaven, I'll bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, I'll search them out and capture them there. If they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, I'll order the serpent to bite them there. If their enemies herd them into exile, I'll order the sword to kill them there. I will fix my gaze on them for harm and not for good. For Adonai Elohim Sevaot is the one who can melt the earth with his touch and make all who live on it mourn. It will all rise just like the Nile and then subside like the Nile in Egypt. He builds his upper rooms in heaven and establishes his sky vault over the earth. He summons the waters of the sea and pours them out over the earth. Adonai is his name. People of Israel, are you any different from the Ethiopians to me? asks Adonai. True, I brought Israel up from Egypt, but I also brought the Philistines from Kaphtor and Aram from Kur. Look, the eyes of Adonai Elohim are on the sinful kingdom. I will wipe it off the face of the earth, yet I will not completely destroy the house of Jacob, says Adonai. For when I give the order, I will shake the house of Israel there among all the Goyim, among all the Gentile nations, as one shakes a sieve, letting no grain fall to the ground. All the sinners among my people who say, Disaster will never overtake us or confront us, they will die by the sword. And when that day comes, I will raise up the fallen sukkah of David. I will close up its gaps, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as it used to be, so that Israel can possess what's left of Edom and of all the nations bearing my name, says Adonai, who is doing this. The days will come, says Adonai, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the one treading grapes, the one sowing seed. Sweet wine will drip down the mountains, and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and inhabit the ruined cities. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine, cultivate gardens, eat their fruit. I will plant them on their own soil, no more to be uprooted from their land which I gave to them, says Adonai, your God. Amos now has a fifth vision. And it begins with a view of the Lord God standing next to the altar. It is interesting that here Amos chooses to identify the one standing next to the altar as the Lord, rather than as Yehovah, as he has been in the habit of doing. 
Now, likely this is because a few verses later there is a quoted part of a well-known hymn of his era in which the name Yehovah is prominent, and so Amos wanted his hearers to focus on that. Now, the altar being spoken of is not the legitimate one at Jer the Jerusalem temple. It's the illegitimate one in Bethel, the main sanctuary location for Ephraim Israel. Now, what follows next is God narrating a judgment against this shrine, this symbol of the perverted religion that Israel now follows, and against those who have taken up this kind of worship. It begins with God saying to strike the capitals, or as the complete Jewish Bible has it, strike the tops of the columns. Now, the capitals were the chiseled and ornamented pieces of stone that sit on top of the support pillars that held up the building. And by smashing the capitals of the pillars, of course, the entire structure collapses. And by saying to smash the capitals on the heads of the people, then the visual image is of the temple falling down and crushing those who worship there. This is meant as a symbolic representation of what is to happen to all who worship the religion of Ephraim Israel. Those who are not crushed and killed by this event, God orders to be killed by the sword, meaning that death at the hand of the as yet to be named invader that will conquer Israel. The idea is all of Israel's worshipers will die one way or another. Now, verse 2 explains that there will be nowhere to run to escape God's wrath and fury. There is no place in the universe, let alone on earth, to hide. So, what follows are five statements and examples of this inability of Israel's people to escape the hand of God's anger against them. In the first and the second of the five statements, if we were to use modern terminology to phrase the, in, the intent of this verse, instead of it saying it would do no good to try to escape to heaven and Sheol, it would say heaven and hell. In Bible scholarship, this literary technique is called merism. Merism uses a couple of words to behave kind of like uh, bookends, such that it means this, that, and everything in between. Now, the principle is that even in the most remote parts of the spiritual and the physical realms, does Yehovah extend his reach. Now, the third and the fourth illustrations of this principle are provided in verse 3. When using another merism, it speaks of the heights of Mount Carmel versus the depths of the sea. And the idea is that neither ascending nor descending to the most secluded and difficult places to access on earth will work as hiding places. This wording, by the way, no doubt, is taken from Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 7 8 says, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I climb up to heaven, you're there. If I lie down in Sheol, you are there. Same idea. 
Now it's kind of interesting that God says that if they attempt to hide in the depths of the sea, that He will find them and send the serpent to bite them. In all of the biblical eras, the sea was a mysterious and a scary place. I mean, after all, no one could see more than a few feet below its surface, no matter how pristine and clear the water, nor could a human dive to more than maybe 50 or so feet into its depth. So the imagination runs wild of what just might live down there, especially when ships and their crews rarely disappeared without a trace. It was the common belief of that era, of that, era that a great monster, a giant snake-like creature, lived in that enormous watery realm that would devour people who fell into the dark waters of the sea. God simply used that commonly held image to elicit terror in the hearts of all who heard this prophecy. Now the fifth example is in verse 4. Even being taken away into slavery and deprivation to a foreign land will not save the exiles from Jehovah's reach. If we look at these five examples from the perspective of dimensions, dimensions, we see that the first four examples had to do with the vertical dimension, up and down. The fifth one speaks of horizontal dimension. Even if Israel's exiles take the few survivors far, far away, it's not going to matter. God will follow them there to complete their punishment. And unlike their belief that no God can have any effect upon them outside of that God's territorial boundary lines, and that territory always coincides with the borders of a particular nation, Jehovah says, oh, He'll find them wherever they go. He will fix His gaze upon them and order the foreigners of that land of their exile to put the Israelite exiles to the sword. So every avenue of hope of escape is cut off. Now, a question for us. A question that pertains to my opening statements. With all this information at hand, why didn't Israel change their behavior? Why did they just keep on doing it? Why didn't they perhaps migrate immediately to Judah, even to a foreign land before God's wrath manifested with a foreign invader falling upon them? Why didn't they at least prepare in some practical, tangible way for this looming catastrophe that was promised, promised to happen? Why? The answer is neither particularly scholarly nor profound. They simply did not believe what God told them. They just didn't believe it. The same religious leadership that told Amos to pack his bags, go back to Judah, stop prophesying, 
Jehovah's message to Ephraim in Ephraim's territory, they lied to the people. They told them, pay no attention to God's warnings through Amos. After all, if the leaders were to take that message to heart, they'd have to humble themselves. They'd have to tell the people the truth. They'd have to get rid of nearly all their shrines, rituals, practices that they held so dearly. They would have to renounce many of their doctrines and repent. They may lose. They just might lose their power and position. And one has to wonder what portion of the population would even accept such a radical change. Even if it was offered when they were perfectly happy with the thing, way things were. Now, what I've just described is the human reality of it all. It is why the modern church and synagogue will probably not be rescued as the man made religious institutions they have become. Just as with Israel in ancient times, the stakes are simply too high for the leadership, for any meaningful change to be seriously contemplated, let alone actually enacted. The only changes that can occur within our Judeo-Christian faith institutions are at the grassroots level, our level, just as Yeshua demonstrated it. It must happen on the individual-by-individual individual level. A leader here, a worshiper there, perhaps even a small group occasionally. It will be difficult for us to change. You know, because we're very aware it's going to come with a cost. Yeshua himself more or less said the same thing. He warned us of the gut wrenching challenges we'll face when we decide to turn away from human doctrines and man made religion and back towards the true biblical faith. He said this in Luke 14, verses 25 through 27. Large crowds were traveling along with Yeshua, and turning, he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, besides, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own execution stake and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's very costly, especially where we are right now. What is our way out of where we might find ourselves? What do we do when we begin to feel as though something isn't quite right about our faith practices and our faith leadership who teach us to rely on man-made doctrines more than biblical truth? What do we do? There's one way. There's only one way. Revelation 18.4. Then I heard another voice out of heaven say, My people, come out of her. Come out of her so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not be infected by her plagues. We have to flee. We must leave behind error and deception. And it will 
nearly for certain be costly in terms of our most valued relationships, just as Jesus warns us. We won't be congratulated and we sure won't be admired for it. And even our own families may try to constantly drag us back into what we have left behind with the threat of our being shunned. Our earthly lives are indeed important, but our eternal lives are far more important. Fellow believers, test what you're being taught against Holy Scripture and in context. If it doesn't match, if what you see happening with your own eyes as concerns worship practices and instruction does not reflect the literal truth of the Bible, then leave where you're attending and do not look back as did Lot's wife. Now, to believe you can remain in order to change your denomination's institutional beliefs is folly. Our example for what happens when we refuse to face reality and make the necessary changes, harsh as it may be, is laid out in vivid color for us in the book of Amos. Well, now, verses 5 and 6 are a portion of an ancient hymn that extols the glory of God. The power of God over nature and over the course and history of humanity, that's at the core of it. When Jehovah but touches the earth, we are told, it melts and it quakes under the weight. Listen to Zechariah 14, starting at verse 1. Look, a day is coming for Adonai when you, your plunder, Jerusalem, will be divided right there within you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for war. The city will be taken, the houses will be rifled, the women will be raped, half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Adonai will go out and fight against those nations, fighting as on a day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west to make a huge valley. Half of the mountain will move towards the north, half of it towards the south. Further into verse 5, the convulsing of our planet when God arrives is illustrated by the rise and fall of the Nile River. The idea is to say that both the land and the waters of our planet are shaken by the Holy One when He executes judgment. Now verse 6 reminds Israel and us, He's not just ruler over the universe, He's the Creator of it all. First He built heaven, then He built earth. His upper dominion is heaven, His lower dominion is earth, but He rules over both. And then next in verse 7 is something that can be startling. On the one hand, Israel was indeed given special privileges and a mission unlike any other. On the other hand, 
says Jehovah, are you not like the Ethiopians to me? First, the word Ethiopians does not appear here. Okay, what the Hebrew says is Bnei Cushi, or in English, the sons of Cush. Only later, much later, would there be a place called Ethiopia that harbors but some of the sons of Cush. Now, this is presented in the form of a rhetorical question that ought to be answered with a yes. However, it is one which Israel in reality says, no. See, this is meant to shock Israel. Because Ephraim, Israel, has so elevated their own importance before God that they felt he had no interest in any other people. After all, was he not Israel's national God? No one else's. Didn't he lead them up out of Egypt and give them the Torah like no one else? Thus, no other people could possibly matter as much, if at all, to God than Israel. But Jehovah sets them straight by saying, Oh, yes, I did, I did indeed bring you up out of Egypt, but guess what? Guess what? I also brought the Philistines from Kaftor. Kaftor is better known today as Crete, and it was the ancient name of an island nation that the Philistines originally came from. And did I also not bring the Aramaeans, that is, the residents of Edom, from Kerr, a place called Kerr? In other words, I helped these nations as well because even though they didn't realize it, I am their God too, and I deeply care about them just as much as I care about you, Israel. Just as much. I mean, what a bitter pill to swallow for Israel. The Arameans and the Philistines? I mean, they were longtime enemies of Israel. So it's bad enough to burst their balloon that Jehovah wasn't exclusively dedicated to them, but to others as well. And that at least some of those others were Israel's sworn enemies. God is essentially putting Ephraim Israel on par with the Arameans and the Philistines when it comes to His mercy and His grace. Well, now in verse 8, after his, this, this humbling revelation that Israel isn't God's only concern, a ray of hope emerges. Yes, says the Lord, His gaze is directly focused on Israel at the moment, and it is a gaze of anger and of wrath. He will destroy the northern kingdom as a political entity, as a nation, until it no longer exists on earth. However, God says He will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, the people. That is, a remnant is going to be allowed to survive even in exile, so that these ten tribes of the north will not become extinct. Long ago, Jehovah had made a promise that extinction would never be Israel's fate, although they may well deserve it. Back in Leviticus, we read in chapter 26, verses 43 and 44, 
for the land will lie abandoned without them, and it will be paid at Shabbat, while it lies desolate without them. And they will be paid the punishment for their misdeeds because they rejected my rulings, they loathed my regulations. Yet, in spite of all that, I will not reject them when they are in the hands, in the lands of their enemies, nor will I loathe them to the point of utterly destroying them, and thus break my covenant with them because I'm at an either God. Now, I want to pause and interject something that must be addressed. Perhaps one of the most fundamental church doctrines taught for more than a thousand years and embraced by the bulk, although not all, of Christianity is that God is through with Israel. But even more, that God dissolved His covenant with Israel when He exiled them and He formed a new one, one that the church calls the New Covenant. A new covenant that was given to the Gentile church, but it was not for Israel. Now, this is a totally false man-made doctrine. Totally false. It's biblically dishonest. And that deceptively makes God either a schizophrenic or a liar. It is one of many, and it's why we must carefully listen to what we're being taught from the pulpit and Bema to see if it's the truth. And if it's not, we must run from it as fast of our fast as our legs can carry us, because our eternal souls are what's at stake. Right here in Leviticus, God says that a day will come when Israel is so unfaithful that He will re- He will eject them from their land, and they will be punished severely. For what reason? For what reason does He say? He says specifically for rejecting His rulings and loathing His regulations. In other words, disobeying His Torah. His Tanakh, the Old Testament, perhaps even to the point of declaring it abolished and replaced. See, is this not precisely what has happened today with much of traditional Christianity? God's commandments, His rules, His regulations are rejected. They're hated. And instead, humanly devised denominational doctrines are created to replace them. In this same passage in Leviticus, God also promises He will not utterly destroy Israel because to do so would essentially amount to breaking His covenant with them. See, God keeps His word, even when we don't. Yet that promise is a two-edged sword. He will indeed always hold to His covenant, but that covenant, well, it contains both blessings and curses. Now, verse 9 is a message wrapped around an agricultural metaphor. God says He will shake Israel as one shakes with a sieve. A special sieve was used to sift the grain in order to get the, the chaff and the small stones and other bits of debris out of it. The grain stalks were laid on a compacted dirt floor. Animals, pulling a kind of a heavy sled, walked 
back and forth over it to separate the kernels from the stalks. Now one can imagine the sorts of items that probably got mixed in with the grain. So a sieve was used as more or less the final step of harvesting. In other words, it happened after the winnowing. The sieve was allowed the small grain kernels, representing the righteous Israelites, through it, leaving behind things like small pebbles. The rebellious of Israel are the pebbles. They are the unwanted debris. However, notice it speaks of how the Israelites will be among the goyim, among the nations, among Gentiles. This means that the Gentiles will be sifted and shaken as well. Now this seems to be speaking of a time of a widespread political and social disorder, out of which Israel's punishment will come. Verse 10 addresses a specific group of Israelites, those who say disaster will never come upon them. This is speaking of the prideful and the arrogant, the self-assured people who are certain that their ways are better than the ways their, ancestor practiced, their ancestors practiced. These are unteachable people who believe that they have nothing to learn. Well, now beginning in verse 11, it's as though the sun is finally appearing after weeks of rain clouds. The words on that day indicate a time of judgment or of redemption. In this case, it's of redemption. In the fullness of time, Jehovah says he will raise up the fallen tent, the fallen sukkah of Jacob. That is, the descendants of the exiles of Israel will receive God's mercy, and a process of restoration will begin. Now sadly, in order to protect these several centuries of uninspired church doctrines, many Christian Bible scholars declare that these were not the original words in Amos. Rather, they were added far later, probably by some sympathetic Judean editor. Is there any evidence of this whatsoever to back up that claim? None. None. It's only that this promise of restoration flies in the face of church doctrines to the contrary. So the way it has been historically handled is to simply question the authenticity of the biblical passage that disputes the doctrine. Now, ironically, other Bible scholars, even including some agnostics, who obviously then have no axe to grind in this debate, say what I just said. There's no evidence at all for this assertion of it not being original language. All of their arguments for removing this passage from our Bibles are ideologically driven, not on any evidence of any kind. Now, there are some important biblical facts in history that helps us to understand what's being proposed here regarding restoration. First, we are witnessing a promise for the restoration of the Davidic dynasty and the rebirth of David's kingdom. This idea was also proposed by the prophet Hosea. Hosea in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, for the people of Israel are going to be in seclusion 
for a long time without a king, prince, sacrifice, standing stone, ritual vest, or household gods. Afterwards, the people of Israel will repent, and they will seek Adonai their God and David their king. They will come trembling to Adonai and his goodness in the Ahrit Hayamim, in the world to come, the days to come. These, this is an end times prophetic revelation. In a nutshell, it predicts the return of Israel. David was king over united Israel long before it split into two separate kingdoms. So it's the return of Israel as a political entity, as a nation. Then those who have been exiled will seek God and long to return to their ancient land. Folks, in case you're still not aware, this has happened. Israel was reborn as a nation in 1948, and many of the exiles immediately began to return. But even more astounding, those who openly identify themselves as members of those ten tribes that form, formed Ephraim Israel, they're also returning in increasing numbers. Now remember, this prophecy happens when? In relation to the end times. Therefore, we can draw a reasonable conclusion that we have indeed entered into that indeterminate time period that the Bible calls the end times. Now God says that the walls of the Israelite cities will be repaired and they'll live there again. And that they'll even possess a remnant, a portion of Edom. That has also come true. See, the Red Sea port city of Elat first belonged to the territory of Judah. Then it was taken from them by Edom. And now Elat is back in Judah's, modern Israel's possession, just as prophesied. The term Edom and the phrase, all the nations over whom my name has been called, are meant as a parallel. That is, while Edom is meant literally, it is also meant to represent other nations as well. This is a grammar te uh, technique, it's not unusual in the Bible, and, and scholars give it the name a synecdoche. Now, verse 13 expands on the nature of the restoration of Israel using another agricultural metaphor. The words, when the plowman shall, over, shall draw near the reaper, is intended to give the picture of the field crops thriving and maturing so fast that the person who's, who is uh, reaping a field or plowing a field, or, um, let me back up, is readying a field, okay, to plant seeds, overtakes the person who is harvesting what he's planting. Now, obviously, this is an exaggeration meant to make the point of an abundance that is even greater for Israel upon their return than before they were exiled from the land. Now, one might call this an unconditional blessing. In fact, it was a promised blessing made to Israel long ago during their exodus from Egypt. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 26. 
in verses 41 to 42. At that time I will be going against them, bringing them into the lands of their enemies, but if their uncircumcised hearts will grow humble, and they are paid the punishment for their misdeeds, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob, also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. And then this topic is addressed again in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 5 through 9. Adonai your God will bring you back into the land your ancestors possess, and you will possess it. He will make you prosper there, and you will become even more numerous than your ancestors. Then Adonai your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your children, so that you will love Adonai your God with all your heart and all your being, and thus you will live. Adonai your God will put all these curses on your enemies, on those who hated and persecuted you. But you will return, and you will pay attention to what Adonai says and obey all of his commandments which I am giving you today. Then Adonai your God will give you more than enough in everything you set out to do, the fruit of your body, the fruit of your livestock, the fruit of your land, will all do well. For Adonai will once again rejoice to see you do well, just as he rejoiced in your ancestors. Well, the next metaphor used, then, is of the person who is treading grapes, overtaking the one who is planting the seed. So grapes were usually harvested and pressed by foot during the months of August and September. The farmers who sow seeds usually start that process during the November-December time frame. So the picture is of a grape harvest being so plentiful they can't even finish stomping all the grapes to extract the juice until it's time for planting new crops. The mention of wine flowing down the sides of hills and mountains is obviously an exaggeration meant to show the enormous quantity of fine wine that will be made in those years after Israel returns from their exile. Well, verses 14 and 15 in the oracles presented in the book of Amos by summing up the extreme nature of the restoration that more than matches the extreme nature of the destruction of Israel. At this point, I want to read to you from another biblical prophet that essentially says all the same things we've been reading, but in more detail. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, we're going to read it all. With the hand of Adonai upon me, Adonai carried me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. He had me pass by all around them. There were so many bones lying in the valley, and they were so dry. And he asked me, Human being, can these bones live? And I answered, Adonai Elohim, only you know that. And then he said to me, Well, prophesy over these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear what Adonai has to say. To those bones, Adonai Elohim says, I will make breath enter you, and you will live. 
I will attach ligaments to you, make flesh grow on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you. You will live and you will know that I'm Adonai. So I prophesied as ordered, and while I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. It was the bones coming together, each bone in its proper place. And as I watched, ligaments grew on them, flesh appeared, skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Next he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, human being. Say to the breath that Adonai Elohim says, Come from the four winds, breathe, and breathe on these slain so that they can live. So I prophesied as ordered, and the breath came into them, and they were alive. And they stood up on their feet, a huge army. And then he said to me, Human being, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they are saying, Our bones have dried up, our hope is gone, we are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them that Adonai Elohim says, My people, I will open your graves and make you get up out of your graves, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Adonai when I have opened your graves and made you get up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit in you, and you will be alive. Then I will place you in your own land, and you will know that I, Adonai, have spoken and that I have done it, says Adonai. And the word of Adonai came to me, you human being, take one stick and write on it. For Judah and those joined to him among the people of Israel, Next, take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel who are joined with him. Finally, bring them together into a single stick so that they become one in your hand. And when your people ask you what all this means, tell them that Adonai Elohim says this, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, together with the tribes of Israel who are joined with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah, and make them a single stick, so that they become one in my hand. The sticks on which you write are to be in your hand as they watch. Then say to them that Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations where they've gone, and gather them from every side, and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. One king will be king for all of them. There will no longer be two nations, and they will never again be divided into two kingdoms. They will never again defile themselves with their idols, their detestable things, or any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the places where they've been living and sinning. I will cleanse them so that they will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and all of them will have one shepherd, and they will live by my rulings and keep and observe my regulations. They will live in the land I gave to Jacob, my servant, where your ancestors live. They will live there, they, their children, their grandchildren, forever. And David, my servant, will be their leader forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give to them, increase their numbers, and set my sanctuary among them forever. 
My home will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The nations will know that I am Adonai who sets Israel apart as holy when my sanctuary is with them forever. You know, I'm not sure there's a more thrilling chapter in the Old Testament than this one. Every time I read it, chills run up my spine. It begins with the announced intent to restore Israel when they are still as dry bones. These dry bones represent the exiles of Israel who are certain that after waiting for so long for God to relent and fulfill His promise of restoration and return that He has forgotten them as they languish in exile. They feel all hope is lost. Next God says He's going to make Israel one. He's going to make them united again. See, we must know Israel's history to understand that they were a united nation, all twelve tribes under one king and one central government for but eighty years in all their history. Under Kings David and Solomon, all the tribes gave up their sovereignty and bowed down to a king. That unification ended after Solomon died. Rivals for the vacant throne led to a civil war that tore the united Israel apart into two separate kingdoms, Judah and Ephraim Israel. This is when the two houses of Israel, the house of Judah and the house of Ephraim Israel concept became a reality. It has remained that way for millennia. But with His two sticks prophecy, the Lord explains that Israel will once again be united under a single king. No more division. I mean, even now today, as the ten tribes steadily flow back to Israel, welcomed by their brother tribe Judah, they together operate under a single government, that of the modern Israeli government. Now, while some of this prophecy has been fulfilled, some of it has not. For instance, it speaks of the returning exiles again living on the mountains of Israel. Well, the mountains of Israel is part of the land of the former Ephraim Israel. And legally, for the time being, the bulk of that region is in the hands of the Palestinians. It's more known to the world as the West Bank. So that portion of Israel's restoration is still future. Another part of the prophecy says that once Israel returns, they will never again be removed from their land. That means that not only will God not punish them ever again with exile, but also that despite the overwhelming number of enemies that Israel faces that want to push them into the Mediterranean Sea, it's just not going to happen. Now, I'm sure this defense of their land is going to come at a great cost to their treasury and to the citizens of Israel, but they will not be leaving that land ever again. You can count on it. Now, the most messianic part of the prophecy, however, is the mention that the king that Israel will ultimately pay homage to will be David. Now, while some Orthodox Jews think that this means that King David will be resurrected in the flesh 
and rule over Israel, most Jews don't believe that way. More, many more believe that it will be a Messiah that is related to King David. Of course, as those of us who trust in Yeshua already know, Yeshua comes from the royal lineage of King David and that He is that Messiah prophesied in Ezekiel as sitting on David's throne. I mean, what a great hope Israel and all those who worship the God of Israel have. A great hope. The time is coming when these prophecies will be completely fulfilled. And all signs are, it is so very near. But what is also coming, what is also coming, is the continual advancement of evil on this planet. We have to face it. It will include a deterioration of the institutions who claim to worship God, a diminishing of the number of individuals who claim allegiance to Him, a series of never-ending wars and diseases, and then the war to end all wars that we are told will be so unimaginably terrible that nothing even close to it has ever been experienced on this planet. Next, God's wrath. And after that, the reign of Messiah Yeshua over the kingdom of heaven for a thousand years. And then finally, a new heavens and earth that completely overturns the old order that has been in existence since Adam and Eve. An order where sin and death have dominated. And upon the recreation is a new heavens and earth. In Revelation 21, verse 1, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. The sea was no longer there. Also I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, See, God's Shekinah is with mankind, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and He Himself, God with them, will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain, because the old order has passed away. Then the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. Everything new. And also He said, Write. These words are true, and they are trustworthy. Okay, this concludes our study of the book of Amos.